It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Why do people become writers? How do authors find their book's subject? Is there hope for the future of poetry? This special episode includes three authors who shed light on the stories behind their works. They spoke at Winter Words, a series hosted by Aspen Words, a literary organization and program of the Aspen Institute. Featured are number one New York Times bestseller Jess Walter, former U.S. Poet Laureate Natasha Trethewey, and L.A. Times Book Prize winner Ruth Ozeki. First up, we have Jess Walter. Walter is a National Book Award finalist and the author of six novels, a book of short stories, and one nonfiction title. His work has been translated into 30 languages. He opens with a reading from his best-selling novel, Beautiful Ruins. Uh, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the story and then end by telling you a little bit about how it came about. I'm only going to read about five pages, um, but I'll hopefully set up the book for you. It begins in Italy um, with an actress arriving. Chapter One, The Dying Actress. April 1962, Porto Vigonia, Italy. The dying actress arrived in his village the only way one could come directly in a boat that motored into the cove, lurched past the rock jetty, and bumped against the end of the pier. She wavered a moment in the boat's stern, then extended a slender hand to grip the mahogany railing. With the other, she pressed a wide-brimmed hat against her head. All around her, shards of sunlight broke on the flickering waves. Twenty meters away, Pasquale Tursi watched the arrival of the woman as if in a dream. Or rather, he would think later, a dream's opposite, a burst of clarity after a lifetime of sleep. Pasquale straightened and stopped what he was doing, what he was usually doing that spring, trying to construct a beach below his family's empty pensione. Chest deep in the cold Ligurian sea, Pasquale was tossing rocks the size of cats in an attempt to fortify the breakwater to keep the waves from hauling away his little mound of construction sand. Pasquale's beach was only as wide as two fishing boats, and the ground beneath his dusting of sand was scalloped rock, but it was the closest thing to a flat piece of shoreline in the entire village, a rumor of a town called Porta Vigonia port of shame, which was a remnant from the founding of the village in the 17th century as a place for sailors and fishermen to find women of a certain moral and commercial flexibility. Port of Vigonia was a tight cluster of a dozen old whitewashed houses, an abandoned chapel, and the town's only commercial interest, the tiny hotel and cafe owned by Pasquale's family, all huddled like a herd of sleeping goats in a crease in the sheer cliffs. Behind the village, the rocks rose 600 feet to a wall of black striated mountains. Below it, the sea settled in a rocky shrimp-curled cove from which the fishermen put in and out every day. And that was where Pasquale stood, half submerged, holding a big rock beneath his chin as the red mahogany boat bobbed into his cove. Then the woman in the boat smiled, and in that instant, if such a thing is possible, Pasquale fell in love, and he would remain in love for the rest of his life, not so much with the woman whom he didn't even know, but with the moment. So that's sort of the beginning of the story, uh, and it really is the story. Oh, thank you. You can clap, but I'm not done. The story sort of runs on two rails. One rail is set in 1962, and it's Pasquale and Dee, and the other rail is set in the present day. Um, and because uh, I'm a sort of novelist who likes to go off the rails, um, it also goes off into the Donner Party um, and Edinburgh and all sorts of places. Um, but this is the second rail, and it follows a woman in Hollywood named Claire, and I'm just going to read a little bit of her section. Chapter 2, The Last Pitch, Recently, Hollywood, California. 
Before sunrise, before Guatemalan gardeners in dirty dinged lawn trucks, before Caribbeans come to cook clean and clothe, before Montessori, Pilates, and coffee beans, before Benzes and BMWs nose onto palm streets and the Bluetooth sharks resume their endless business, the gentrification of the American mind, there are the sprinklers rising from the ground to spit spray the northwest corner of greater Los Angeles, airport to the hills, downtown to the beaches, the slumbering rubble of an entertainment regime. In Santa Monica, they call to Claire Silver in the pre-dawn quiet of her condo, psst, hey, her curly red hair splayed on the pillow like a suicide. They whisper again, psst, hey, and Claire's eyelids flutter she inhales, orients, glances over at the marbled shoulder of her boyfriend, sprawled asleep on his 70% of the king size. Daryl often cracks the bedroom window behind their bed when he comes in late, and Claire wakes like this, psst, hey, to water spritzing the rock garden outside. She's asked the condo manager why it's necessary to water a bed of rocks every day at 5 a.m., or at all for that matter, but of course sprinklers are not the real issue. Claire wakes, jonesing for data. She fumbles the crowded bedside table for her Blackberry, takes a digital hit. 14 emails, six tweets, five friend requests, three texts, and her calendar. Life in a palm. General stuff, too. It's Friday, 66 on the way to 74. Five phone calls scheduled today. Six pitch meetings. Claire is the chief development assistant for the legendary film producer Michael Dean. The title is phony. Her job's all assisting, no developing, and she's nobody's chief. She tends Michael's whims, answers his calls and emails, goes for his sandwiches and coffee, and mostly she reads for him. Great herds of scripts and synopses, one-sheets and treatments, a stampede of material going nowhere. She'd hoped for so much more when she quit her doctoral film studies program and went to work for the man who was known in the 70s and 80s as the Dean of Hollywood. She'd wanted to make movies, smart moving films, but when she arrived three years, when, but when she arrived three years ago, Michael Dean was in the worst slump of his career with no recent credits except the indie zombie bomb Night Ravagers. In Claire's three years, Dean Productions has made no other movies. The hit re um, there, in fact, its only production has been the single television program, the hit reality show and dating website, hookbook.net. And with the monstrous success of that cross-media abomination, movies have become a fading memory at Dean Productions. Instead, Claire's days are spent listening to TV pitches so offensive, she fears she's single-handedly hastening the apocalypse. Model behavior. We take seven models and put them in a frat house. And nympho night. We film the dates of people diagnosed with sex addiction. And drunk midget house. See, it's a house full of drunk midgets. So Claire works for this guy, Michael Dean, and uh, it's her job to hear pitches, and uh, a man is gonna come into her uh, office pitching a movie, she thinks, about uh, an actress who arrives in a village in 1962. And it's only after um, listening, to, listening to the pitch for a while that she realizes this isn't a pitch, this is Pasquale Tursi, the man from the beginning of the book, come to find the woman that he fell in love with, or at least the moment that he fell in love with in that first chapter. And that's sort of the tension of the novel. Uh, and I'll just read one more thing because I talked about my hero, Kurt Vonnegut, and he um, always had great advice for writers, one of which was to put a villain in it. And so I'm gonna read the quick description of the villain of this story, um, if there is such a thing, which I don't really believe in. Um, and that's uh, Michael Dean. The Dean of Hollywood reclines in silk pajamas on a chaise on his lanai, sipping a fresco with ginseng and looking out over the trees to the glittering lights of Beverly Hills. The first impression one gets of Michael Dean is of a man constructed of wax or perhaps prematurely embalmed. <laughs> After all these years, it may be impossible to trace the sequence of facials, spa treatments, mud baths, cosmetic procedures, lifts and staples, collagen implants, outpatient touch-ups, tannings, Botox injections, cyst and growth removals, and stem cell injections that have caused a 72-year-old man to have the face of a nine-year-old Filipino girl. <laughs> 
So that is beautiful ruins. Um, I have one pet peeve about authors, and it's when they say things like, this book took me 15 years to write, and the characters got up and acted on their own. Um, right, being a writer is a really clerical thing, and we say a lot of things to make it sound magical. Um, you know, a book that took 15 years to write means you spent 12 years in rehab. And, <laughs> and that, and that tripe about characters getting up and acting on their own. I tried that when I was young, and my characters would just sit around like my brother and I did and drink beer. <laughs> you really have to put them in motion. Uh, I, I love what um, Vladimir Nabokov said when someone asked him about characters acting on their own. He said, I've heard that. My characters are galley slaves. They do exactly as I say. <laughs> and that's why it breaks my heart to tell you that Beautiful Ruins took me 15 years to write. <laughs> and that I only finished it when the characters got up and acted on their own. But it's sadly the truth. In 1997, my wife and I went to Italy, uh, and the minute I landed there, I thought, this is the sort of place I want to transport readers. I didn't go on an airplane until I was in my 20s. Uh, I've still yet to ever really take a trip that wasn't connected to a book or a newspaper assignment. All of my travel was paid for by someone else. Uh, and so to take this one trip to Italy with my wife, this seemed like the most romantic, incredible place ever. Uh, and her, she has family up and down the boot, and they were so generous to us. But after a while, I could not stand eating that much food. It was like being pasta boarded, just <laughs> constantly shoving food down my throat. And so we escaped. We decided we would go somewhere where she had no family. And um, we'd heard about the Cinque Terre. And so we took a train from Florence. And uh, we arrived in the middle of a rainstorm. We were about the only people who got off. And the streets were shimmering with rainwater. And we went to our hotel, the Albergo Pasquale. And we checked in, and the next morning I threw open the shutters and the sun had come out and there was the beautiful Ligurian Sea. And from that moment I knew this is the place I'm gonna write a novel about. When I got home, uh, I found out that my mother um, was dying of stomach cancer. And, uh, and I spent the next um, month and a half or two months nursing her um, as she died, and it was so painful and tragic. And I had this urge to show my mother in the way that fiction can show us great places, this amazing place that I'd seen, a place she would never see. Um, she would never get to go to Europe. She would never get to see the places I've seen. And, I, and through fiction, I, I, in some way, I wanted to show her. So in the original draft of the novel that I started in 1997, the character was very much like my mother. And I chose 1962 because that was before she had children. And it was a time when she was young and could have gone to this village. I, I quickly realized that this wasn't a book about my mother. Um, I wrote other things about her, and yet little bits of that character remain. Um, Dee's stomach cancer, for instance, was what my mom died of. Um, her long hands. There are, um, no one else would see that character as my mom, but for me, I still think of it that way. I think of her that way. Um, that, I started with that chapter that I read from of Dee arriving and Pasquale falling in love with her, and I had that for about three years, and for about three years, that's all I had. I had no idea who this woman was. I had no idea who Pasquale was. I just had these two people in this town and in Italy. Uh, I even finally decided I couldn't write about the Cinque Terre anymore, so I invented my own village, um, Porto Vagonia. And then I had this brilliant idea. Uh, I had wanted to call the hotel the Hotel Adequate View because it made me laugh. But I realized that, that Italian men are not really big on understatement, so um, uh, I needed an American. And so I created this American character named Alvis Bender. Uh, and, a, and I decided he would be stuck on one chapter of the novel the way I was stuck on one chapter of a novel. So I introduced him into the book. Uh, and suddenly uh, I realized that I wanted to see his chapter, so I wrote his chapter. Um, but then I got stuck again, and as always would happen when I would get stuck, I would write another novel. I wrote five other novels in the time that it took me to fail at this book over and over, and every time I finished another novel, I would come back to what was called the Hotel Adequate View, and every time I would get completely stuck. In the meantime, I was ghostwriting, I was writing scripts, I was teaching, I was doing whatever you, I could to get to make money. And uh, when people would ask what I was working on, I would almost never describe this novel because I didn't quite know how. I did one time, I was doing an event with Timothy Egan. 
And people asked what we were working on. And I said, well, working on two things, a novel about a suburban cattle ranch and a novel about um, Italy and Hollywood and um, uh, the Donner Party and um, uh, a punk rock band. And it was just deathly silent in the auditorium. And Tim Egan said, I think I'd go with the cattle ranching story. And the more, the more I worked on the novel, the, the deeper the rabbit holes went. Um, once it wasn't my mother, I thought, well, who is this woman in 1962? And I quickly decided she was an actress. And then I had to find out what was going on in Italy in 1962. And that led me to Cleopatra. And that led me to Richard Burton. And every time I would discover something, it seemed like the greatest thing that I could put into this novel. And this novel became this great secret that I shared with myself. Other novels were coming out, were getting great reviews, but I kept thinking, I think this one might really be something. And the key for the entire novel was that time kept passing. Uh, I finished a draft, I read it, I hated it, I set it aside, I never showed it to anyone, I never showed it to my agent. Um, I showed uh, some pages to a writer friend and uh, he agreed with me that it wasn't very good yet. Um, but meanwhile, years were passing and for me, I'd lost one parent, another parent had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, a, one child, Brooklyn, had moved up and out of the house, two more children had been born and were growing up, all that life comes to bear on you and it comes to bear on the pages and it strangely enough comes to bear on the characters. And I started thinking in real terms about the lives that the characters were leading, about the time that was passing for them, about their heartaches and their joys and their passions and whether or not they lived up to the dreams of their lives. And I, and I had a sort of fidelity to those two characters. Poor Pasquale who stood in that freezing water for 15 years had to be suffering from hypothermia. Get me out of this water. And D, what was happening to her. And so every time I would finish a novel, I would come back to it. The last time in 2009, um, I finished Financial Lives of the Poets, and I said, I'm gonna take one more run at this failed Italian novel, and if I can't do it, I'm just gonna give up. And I went back to Italy one more time, armed with the journal that I carry with me everywhere I go. Uh, and I hiked the Cinque Terre one, one last time. And I saw things I'd never noticed before, machine gun bunkers that I found a way to incorporate into the story. Um, I watched fishermen haul up their, uh, the, their catches. And I was so imbued with the place um, that it, it that uh, suddenly the novel felt real to me again. And that night, the night before I flew home, I stayed up all night writing in my journal about everything that I'd seen and everything that I wanted for the characters. And I felt like I'd been carrying these characters around with me for 15 years and that, and that now I had an answer to how the, the story could end. And as I wrote it, um, I wrote uh, all these notes to myself and one of the last things I wrote was, it's 6 a.m., the birds are singing. I had stayed up all night writing 35 pages in my journal and and at the very end I I had written um, sketched out a scene that was one last scene between Dee and Pasquale and even now um, as I wrote that scene I had this weird sense that they were real people that they were looking over their shoulder and thanking me for continuing the journey and for finishing the book um, I sent it to my agent he liked it I sent it to my editor he liked it my wife really liked it and then I sent it to my daughter Brooklyn and um, it's still the greatest response I've ever gotten. She said, Dad, do you remember growing up? God, if I could tell the story without choking up. Do you remember growing up how I always asked you for books to read? This is the one I wanted. That was Jess Walter. Next up, we hear from Natasha Trethaway. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her poetry and was the U.S. Poet Laureate in 2012. Here, Trethaway reads from her most recent poetry collection, Thrall, and shares some of the personal and public histories behind her work. Good evening, and thank you all for coming. I am honored to be here and grateful to the folks of Aspen Words for inviting me here tonight. I am going to read tonight from, mostly from my most recent collection of poems, Thrall, which examines deeply ingrained and often unexamined notions of racial difference, ideas that were ironically codified during the age of reason, the Enlightenment. I consider these notions of otherness in poems that chart both a public history and a personal history within my own family, my black mother and my white father. 
I'm going to begin by reading some poems that also seem timely for this particular historical moment. It was a great a meaningful pleasure and delight for me to have served the country as the U.S. Poet Laureate at this particular moment, um, a hundred years to the moment where we are celebrating significant advances um, in civil rights and significant moments in the civil rights movement, but also at the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. Miscegenation. In 1965, my parents broke two laws of Mississippi. They went to Ohio to marry, returned to Mississippi. They crossed the river into Cincinnati, a city whose name begins with a sound like sin, the sound of wrong, miss in Mississippi. A year later, they moved to Canada, followed a route the same as slaves, the train slicing the white glaze of winter, leaving Mississippi. Faulkner's Joe Christmas was born in winter, like Jesus, given his name for the day he was left at the orphanage, his race unknown in Mississippi. My father was reading War and Peace when he gave me my name. I was born near Easter, 1966, in Mississippi. When I turned 33, my father said, it's your Jesus year. You're the same age he was when he died. It was spring, the hills green in Mississippi. I know more than Joe Christmas did. Natasha is a Russian name, though I'm not. It means Christmas child, even in Mississippi. We are, of course, at a moment of remembering history, but also finding some ghosts of the past manifest in our everyday lives, particularly in those places where people are trying to limit the voting rights of other American citizens. My grandmother uh, in Mississippi lived across the street from the Mount Olive Baptist Church, and in the mid to late 60s, the church was doing a voter registration drive to get disenfranchised African Americans registered to vote. Now, we were living there, my mother and father and I, briefly with my grandmother. And my grandmother had a driveway that um, she allowed the church to park its bus in because the church didn't have its own bus. For that reason, we never knew if what happened was an act of terrorism against the, the church doing the voter registration drive or the interracial family living in the house. Incident. We tell the story every year. How we peered from the windows, shades drawn, though nothing really happened, the charred grass now green again. We peered from the windows, shades drawn, at the cross trussed like a Christmas tree, the charred grass still green. Then we darkened our rooms, lit the hurricane lamps. At the cross, trussed like a Christmas tree, a few men gathered, white as angels in their gowns. We darkened our rooms and lit hurricane lamps, the wicks trembling in their fonts of oil. It seemed the angels had gathered, white men in their gowns. When they were done, they left quietly. No one came. The wicks trembled all night in their fonts of oil. By morning, the flames had all dimmed. When they were done, the men left quietly. No one came. Nothing really happened. By morning, all the flames had dimmed. We tell the story every year. What I believed about myself when I started writing poems is that I was drawn to narrative. Uh, before I started writing poems, I thought that I was going to write stories. I liked short fiction, lyrical short fiction, of course, but short fiction nonetheless. Um, and so I was always drawn to trying to tell a story in poems. And yet, as I began to do it, it seemed to me that um, it was where the poems shade toward the lyrical that 
I'm able to get closer to the emotional truth of a poem. That those are the places, the, the story has to sort of advance what's happening, but it's the lyricism, it's the quality of song that does something with emotion. And I think that, that a great poem to, to use to illustrate that is the second poem I read, Incident, which was about the clan burning a cross um, on my family's yard. When I started writing that poem, which is a, the poem is a pantoum, so it's, it's in a form that uh, is trying to subvert narrative because it's got to circle back on itself again and again. But when I first wrote it, I wrote it as a very pedestrian little narrative poem um, that was mainly concerned with telling the incident, telling what happened from beginning to end. And when I finished it, I knew it wasn't working. And so what I did was I, I sat down and I wrote those first four lines in an attempt to condense the story into four lines. We tell the story every year, how we peered from the window, shades drawn, though nothing really happened, the charred grass now green again. Four lines that really told the whole story. And then, with that, I knew then to try to write a pantoum, I had to pull lines two and four down into the position of one and three and write two more and so on and so on. And that prevented me from my own pedestrian leanings toward story, toward narrative, but also got at a larger emotional truth that the poem was really about. Not simply the incident itself, but the need to remember to tell the story over and over so we don't forget those things which are both part of our personal and our historical past. That seemed like a bigger truth than the facts of what happened. But it was only lyric that got me there and not just narrative, not just story. Trethaway also talks about being the poet laureate in her decision to move to Washington so she could hold office hours. She says she wanted to talk to the public about poetry. It was pretty old school, and I, and I kind of happened upon it accidentally. The last poet to have done it was Gwendolyn Brooks, who was the last consultant. Uh, after Gwendolyn Brooks, they changed the title to Poet Laureate, and Robert Penn Warren came back in 1986 as the first Poet Laureate. He'd also been a consultant in the 40s. These days, it seems like when you get appointed Poet Laureate, immediately people start asking you um, what your project is going to be. And that's because in recent years, we've had great laureates who have actually taken on service projects. They've done things. And, you know, I, I was so surprised when I got that phone call. I hadn't been planning, you know, I'm going to get the call one day and I'll have a project. So uh, the first thing I said that I decided to do was um, I wanted to... You know, because the library wants the laureate to be a lightning rod, as they say, for poetry and to bring poetry to a wider audience across the country, I thought that what I would do was just listen to people tell me what they thought a laureate could do to promote poetry. And so it occurred to me that I could, I could move to Washington and hold office hours uh, in the laureate's office. And because of that, I did have people from across the country, I mean, certainly more people in the D.C. area and, you know, in, you know as far as New York, but people from uh, the, the other side of the country as well. And what I was most taken by um, seems to me to be something that uh, every laureate has learned before, and that is the real importance that poetry plays in American life. And you will hear again and again that it doesn't. You will hear, um, you will read it in the Wall Street Journal, you will read it in Harper's, you will read it in many magazines over the years again and again, someone heralding the death of poetry, saying no one cares about it. And yet, so many people came to my office from so many different walks of life who cared about poetry and wanted simply to talk about it, to say what it meant to them. Sometimes there were people confessing to liking poetry. <laughs> people who weren't telling their coworkers or, you know, their families, but they were doing it in secret. And I think that because of that, what I realize is that, it, you know, and other poets laureate have said this, that it is important still to us and that people still turn to it, whether they read it or write it, they still do. And that was the best part about it. Trethaway describes her exposure to poetry as a child and learning the power of words. I was lucky enough to get poetry in school. I don't know how much that happens anymore, but I was in a great elementary school where we learned to recite poetry. 
Um, I also had my father, who was a poet, working on poems and reciting poems and letting me read his poems. But the first thing that I ever memorized uh, to recite was not a poem, but the Gettysburg Address. Uh, I begged my mother to let me buy it on a trip we took um, where they had some little scrolls in the, in the gift shop. And I remember thinking, not only was it powerful, the language, and beautiful, and lyrical, and moving, and rhythmic, but also that it was about a kind of justice. And I was drawn to it for those two reasons. And I think since then, I've been a poet interested not only in the sounds of language and in, in the language and its beauty, but its ability to help us deal with our most difficult knowledge and to help push us toward justice. That was Natasha Trethaway. Next, we hear from Ruth Ozeki, author of A Tale for the Time Being, her Man Booker Prize winning book. Ozeki begins by introducing the voice of her protagonist. Novels, um, when they first come to me, they come to me as a voice, usually. Um, it's something that I hear, and it's usually the voice of a character, um, you know, one of, the, one of the characters in the novel, though sometimes it's also the voice of the book itself. Um, and there's a, certain, there's a certain tone that comes with this, there's a kind of an attitude that comes with this, and until I actually hear that voice, I can't really, I mean, I can, I can have ideas for, you know, for plots and things like that, but I can't actually start writing the book until um, I start to hear that tone, that voice. So in, uh, in 2006, and I know exactly when, uh, when this was because now we all use computers and, and word processing programs and everything has a date stamp, so um, you can't lie to yourself about how long it's taken you to write a book. In December of 2006, um, this voice came to me and it was the, it was the voice of a, a character, um, this young uh, Japanese schoolgirl named Naoko Yasutani. Um, her name, uh, for short, is she's called Nao, N-A-O. And um, she's a young Japanese schoolgirl living in Tokyo. And, um, and I, started to, I started to hear the voice, and I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning so you can hear it in the same way that I heard it. Hi. My name is Nao, and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time being is? Well, if you give me a moment, I will tell you. A time being is someone who lives in time, and that means you and me and every one of us who is or was or ever will be. As for me, right now, I'm sitting in a French maid cafe in Akiba Electricity Town, listening to a sad chanson that's playing sometime in your past, which is also my present, writing this and wondering about you somewhere in my future. And if you're reading this, then maybe by now you're wondering about me too. You wonder about me, I wonder about you. Who are you and what are you doing? Are you in a New York subway car hanging from a strap or soaking in your hot tub in Sunnyvale? Are you sunbathing on a sandy beach in Phuket or having your toenails buffed in Abu Dhabi? Are you a male or a female or somewhere in between? Is your girlfriend cooking you a yummy dinner or are you eating cold Chinese noodles from a box? Are you curled up with your back turned coldly towards your snoring wife? Or are you eagerly waiting for your beautiful lover to finish his bath so you can make passionate love to him? Do you have a cat? And is she sitting on your lap? Does her forehead smell like cedar trees and fresh, sweet air? Actually, it doesn't matter very much, because by the time you read this, everything will be different, and you will be nowhere in particular flipping idly through the pages of this book, which happens to be the diary of my last days on earth, wondering if you should keep on reading. And if you decide not to read anymore, hey, no problem, because you're not the one I was waiting for anyway. But if you do decide to read on, then guess what? You're my kind of time being, and together we'll make magic. So, you know, as soon as I, I heard this voice, I knew certain things about Nao Yasutani. I knew that she was a junior high school student in Tokyo. Um, I knew that she was troubled and possibly even suicidal. 
Um, but I also knew that she had an attitude and kind of a sense of humor and, and a, kind of an inner source of strength. Um, she was writing in English, which was odd because why would a Japanese schoolgirl be writing in English? Um, but she was also writing to somebody. She was writing in a diary, but she was writing this to somebody. And that was odd too, because that's not normally the way we, you know, the reason we write in diaries. But she had all the confidence of a young writer sort of casting her words out into the world, you know, confident that, that uh, someone, some reader, would be out there to receive them. So the question was, you know, who, who was she writing to? And um, the, the problem was that she didn't know who she was writing to. She didn't know who her reader was, and so neither did I. And so then it's my job as a novelist to figure out the, the answer to this question. You know, who is now Yasutani's reader? And it took me about five years to figure this out. Um, and I discovered at the end of this very long time, uh, much to my surprise, that Now's reader was a novelist um, named Ruth. <laughs> like me. <laughs> Married to a man named Oliver, like me, who had a cat, like me. Um, so uh, I'd like to read a little section of Ruth's, uh, Ruth's uh, section here so that you can hear what her section sounds like. A tiny sparkle caught Ruth's eye, a small glint of refracted sunlight angling out from beneath a massive tangle of drying bull kelp which the sea had heaved up on the sand at full tide. She mistook it for the sheen of a dying jellyfish and almost walked right by it. The beaches were overrun with jellyfish these days, the monstrous red stinging kind that looked like wounds along the shoreline. But something made her stop. She leaned over and nudged the heap of kelp with the toe of her sneaker and then poked it with a stick. Untangling the whip-like fronds, she dislodged enough to see that what glistened underneath was not a dying sea jelly, but something plastic, a bag. Not surprising, the ocean was full of plastic. She dug a bit more until she could lift the bag up by its corner. It was heavier than she expected, a scarred plastic freezer bag encrusted with barnacles that spread across its surface like a rash. It must have been in the ocean for a long time, she thought. Inside the bag, she could see a hint of something red, someone's garbage, no doubt, tossed overboard or left behind after a picnic or a rave. The sea was always heaving things up and hurling them back, fishing lines, floats, beer cans, plastic toys, tampons, Nike sneakers. A few years earlier, it was severed feet. People were finding them up and down Vancouver Island, washed up on the sand. One had been found on this very beach. No one could explain what had happened to the rest of the bodies. Ruth didn't want to think about what might be rotting inside the bag. She flung it farther up the beach. She would finish her walk and then pick it up on the way back, take it home, and throw it out. Well, needless to say, she doesn't take it home and throw it out. Uh, she doesn't throw it out. She takes it home and leaves it on the porch where her husband Oliver finds it. He had smoothed the bags flat, laid them out on top of one another in descending order of size, and then sorted the contents into three neat collections a small stack of handwritten letters, a pudgy bound book with a faded red cover, a sturdy antique wristwatch with a matte black face and a luminous dial. Next to these sat a Hello Kitty lunchbox that had protected the contents from the corrosive effects of the sea. The cat was sniffing at the lunchbox. Ruth picked him up and dropped him on the floor and then turned her attention to the items on the table. The letters appeared to be written in Japanese. The cover of the red book was printed in French. The watch had markings etched onto the back that were difficult to decipher, so Oliver had taken out his iPhone and was using the microscope app to examine the engraving. I think this is Japanese too, he said. Ruth flipped through the letters, trying to make out the characters that were written in faded blue ink. The handwriting's old and cursive, beautiful, but I can't read a word of it. She put the letters down and took the watch from him. Yes, she said, they're Japanese numbers. Not a date, though. Yon, nana, san, hachi, nana. Maybe a serial number? She held the watch up to her ear and listened for the ticking, but it was broken. She put it down and picked up the bright red lunchbox. How long had it been floating out there in the ocean before washing up? The lunchbox lid had a rubber gasket around the rim. 
She picked up the book, which was surprisingly dry, the cloth cover soft and worn, its corners blunt from rough handling. She put the edge to her nose and inhaled the musty scent of mildewed pages and dust. She looked at the tarnished gilt title embossed on the red cloth spine. À la recherche du temps perdu, she read, by Marcel Proust. Her French wasn't great, but she opened the cover anyway, curious to see if she could understand just the first few lines. She was expecting to see an age-stained folio printed in an antique font, so she was entirely unprepared for the adolescent purple handwriting that sprawled across the page. It felt like a desecration, and it shocked her so much she almost dropped the book. Hi, she read. My name is now, and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time being is? Ozeki is joined on stage by her book's editor, Carol DeSanti. She is vice president at Viking Penguin. DeSanti and Ozeki share a playful banter about Ozeki's writing life. I just kind of want you to read us the rest of the book, Ruth. <laughs> Um, one of the really fun things we got to do um, with this book was to have Ruth actually read the um, audio book, which is kind of unusual in publishing these days because you have to sort of hand it over to the audio producers and they bring in the talent. Professionals. <laughs> to uh, to <laughs> the professionals because those people don't need breaks, they don't need food, and they go straight through you know, a 12-hour day. But as I pointed out, well, Ruth reads really beautifully, and she's not like other authors. <laughs> so we actually had Ruth read the audiobook, and, and it was wonderful. So. It, I, I figured something. I really wanted to read the book, but I knew that there was this kind of, um, you know, that it was difficult to, to, to actually be allowed to do that. And so I figured out that if you just put enough Japanese in the, in the book, <laughs> then they kind of have to let you do it, right? <laughs> so that was my strategy. Yeah, that's true. It, one, there was one email. that said, well, there's French, there's Japanese, there are footnotes, and <laughs> there's a lot of Zen. So it really just might be easiest to have Ruth do it. But I have to say, too, that it was, um, it, it was one of the most amazing um, experiences I've ever had in publication to do that audio book recording. You know, most of the time when, you know, when you're a writer, you, you finish your manuscript and you send it in to, you know, to, the, to, the, you know, to your editor, and then it disappears for a long time, and then it comes back as a, as a bound book. It's not like I'm actually sitting there binding the book and stitching it together and gluing on the cover and doing all of the, you know, the, the work, right? Whereas, you know, doing the audio book recording, it was entirely different because it, it was literally sort of bringing every single word up through my body again and out into the world. And it was a beautiful, sort of very intimate and, and wonderful experience. I really enjoyed it. And they booked 80 hours of audio studio time for me. In other words, two weeks, right? Two, two weeks. And I did it in four and a half days. <laughs> You aced it, Ruth. <laughs> Yet again. And she poured sake for us at the same time. Um, speaking of stitching, Ruth, I know that Ruth is actually one of the authors who would like to be in the bindery stitching up, yeah, stitching up her books and, and putting the jackets on. And um, Ruth's, Ruth's affection for, for crafts has, has sometimes come between us in our editor-author relationship, and never more so than when Ruth um, decided to take a, a, a break from writing after her second novel, which we haven't mentioned it yet, but it is also a wonderful novel called All Over Creation, um, and decided to embark on a lengthy ordination process as a Zen priest, and one of the things that she was called upon to do, I found after a few years, was to sew a robe with many, many, many thousands of stitches. <laughs> and of course, in publishing, patience is not one of our cardinal virtues, and people were asking me, you know, what about another novel from Ruth Ozeki? I mean, what's going on? And I would think about these stitches. Um, and I, I also <laughs> each one of them could have been a word. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. 
It's true. That's true. Uh, Carol, at one point, we were having dinner, and I had just bought a craft book, a beautiful book on Japanese crafts, and I was so pleased with it, and I took it out to show it to her, and she said, oh, let me see that. And I handed it to her, and she promptly just put it into her bag, and she said, I'll give it back to you after you turn in the manuscript. <laughs> but in fact, Ruth, it really, it really was a long gap between was, your, your second novel and, and this novel, and that was, um, there, there were periods in there where I just didn't know whether we were going to be able to have another novel from you. And, um, I, and, and when this manuscript came in, it was so, I mean, we were just astonished by it. Not that your other novels hadn't been wonderful, because they were. But this book really took such a giant leap uh, forward and I'll, I'll, in scope, in subject matter, and I, I think just in terms of the canvas of your imagination had somehow enlarged. And, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it's, it, it's just a question of where to start. Um, in a way, this book is a book that I've been writing uh, probably since the late 90s. When um, when my uh, parents were my father died, and um, it was a it was a time I mean uh, you know with the death of a parent that was very uh, very traumatic and very upsetting, and um, it was a time when I started taking Buddhism very seriously again. Um, Buddhism is very effective um, and, and a wonderful thing to to practice um, you know when you're confronting these issues of of sickness, old age, and death. And I certainly was at that time, and um, and I started practicing. Uh, I started practicing Buddhism very seriously and, um, and, and thinking about how we are, in fact, all of us time beings. In other words, we're beings with a time limit. And, um, and this is something that, you know, that, that, of course, we know this, right? But we don't really pay attention to it. And, and yet I was living with this, you know, I was living with, I'm an only child, so I was really, you know, the, the, um, taking care of my parents really um, at the end of their lives sort of fell into, very much into my lap and, and, um, and there was no escaping this, right? And so, um, and, and at the same time in, in 98 when my dad died, um, my mother was, also, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so, you know, it, it fell to me to take care of her during her, you know, the last years of her life. And once again, it was very clear that she was a time being who was, you know, very gradually, little by little, dropping out of time. Um, you know, she was, she was traveling backwards in time, almost, you know, as, as her memories of, of, you know, the recent present, you know, were ephemeral and they just disappeared. She couldn't remember one, you know, one minute from the next, but her memories of, of the past were, were very, very strong. Um, and, and so, you know, this was something that I was, I was watching um, on a daily basis. And, and all of this, I think, um, you know, all of this and also the Zen practice that I was doing at the time, all of this got worked into a tale for the time being. And it was a, you know, it was a very circuitous route. Um, Carol only saw the last draft of the book, but there were about five drafts before that that you were spared. <laughs> um, you know, I said earlier in the, in the talk that, uh, you know, when I was starting out that, that um, I knew that now had a reader, that this book was going to be about the conversation, you know, conversation between a writer and a reader. I knew that she was going to have a reader, and I didn't know who it was. And I spent about four years auditioning readers for that role in the book, right? And it literally was that. You know, I would, I would think of a reader, I would invite the reader into the fictional world, I would arrange for the reader to, aren't you glad you didn't know any of this? <laughs> you know, arrange for the reader to find the diary, the reader would read the diary, and, um, you know, and, and start to react, and the fictional world would, you know, get all, you know, start to grow and get all kind of nice and big and plump and juicy, and then one morning I would, you know, open up the manuscript and find the whole thing had just, you know, collapsed. Um, and and I'd, read her, I'd realize that that's the wrong reader. I'd usher the reader out of the world, and then we'd go through the whole process again after a suitable period of grieving. And this, this process went on, you know, about four or five times with four or five different versions of this, of this world, of this, of this book. Um, and finally, I finished, in, um, I, I finished a draft in, uh, that I was reasonably happy with, even though I knew that there were problems with it. But in any case, my agent and I decided that we would now you know, submit it to Carol. And I was just doing that final polishing, sort of moving commas around. And uh, when on March 11th, 2011, you know, the, the Japanese earthquake and tsunami hit. And, and that was 
you know, one of those events. It was such a catastrophic event. It, it almost causes a rift in time. And, you know, I had, you know, this was, I have family and friends also in, in Tokyo and Sendai. So it was, um, you know, it was, it was a very traumatic event. But in any case, somewhere in there, I realized that, you know, I had written this book that was a, you know, a pre-earthquake, pre-tsunami pre-Fukushima book, and now right. we were living in a post-earthquake, right. post-Fukushima world. we had world. dinner. That, we had dinner right yes. around then, and the, Ruth The day said after. Me, the, the day, day after. after, and Ru right. and I knew that Ruth had been working on this book very hard and really struggling with it, and 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 then she sat down and said, well, I, I've written a book um, about Japan that no longer exists and that I can't publish and that I can't continue with it yeah. because of this event, this yeah. gigantic event, and we just kind of sat there and right. looked at each other and ordered another round of <laughs> another bottle of wine That's right. <laughs> um, That's um, and, right. and, and talked about it, talked yeah. about um, taking on a gigantic world event that we had no idea what the ramifications yeah. and consequences of it would turn out to be and how do you how do you work through that through in fiction? Because let me tell you, I was not going to let her give up this novel. <laughs> I didn't care how many bottles of wine it was going to take. But we were going to sit there until she felt a little bit like she could go back. <laughs> um, but it, it ended up taking until about, well, actually, it was, I, I ended up talking with Oliver. And, um, and, and he was the one who kind of came up with this suggestion that, you know, that I sort of step into the book as a character. And his idea was that, you know, reality had intruded on this fictional world and, you know, had broken the fictional world. And so the way to continue was to step into the fictional world as a real person and allow it to continue to be broken and then to, to really address the issue of the earthquake the tsunami and the meltdown yeah. of Fukushima yeah. directly in yeah. the book, and so that's what yeah. that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. So I ended up taking the manuscript, unzipping it, throwing away about two thirds of it, and then starting again right. from scratch. Yeah. And um, yep. and that was <laughs> actually it was yeah. actually one of it was brilliant. It was it was one of the best writing periods in my life. Right. Um, it felt so right to be doing that. I knew at that point that this was the book. All those years that I'd been spent searching for it, this was it. That was Ruth Ozeki. Before her, we heard Natasha Trethaway and Jess Walter. Each talk was recorded live in Aspen during Winter Words. The series is hosted by Aspen Words, a nonprofit literary organization and program of the Aspen Institute. Its mission is to encourage writers, inspire readers, and connect people through the power of stories. Information about the 2016 Winter Words series is available at aspenwords.org. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. Thank you.